Morning, everybody. Okay, so we're in a series of lessons called The Resurrection Effect. And what we've been looking at is what was affected by the resurrection and how should that affect us? You know, the world was a very different place to live after Jesus rose from the dead. That was the central point of marking time. Even people who don't believe in Jesus still recognize the date based on Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to take some time over a period of weeks to look at the effect of the resurrection. My task over the first three weeks, and this will be the third of them, is to kind of look at the big picture. Look at restoration. See, one of the effects of the resurrection was restoration. God is restoring some things. And what we've done each week is we've looked at one particular thing that God's restoring. We go back and look at what he had it like in Genesis, and then we see what he's done to restore that. The first week we looked at the restoration of relationship. And what we found was something we kind of knew already. God created us intentionally for a specific kind of relationship with him. And of course we know what happened. That got vandalized. It was lost. But God restored it. And he continues to restore it for those of us who trust him and love him. And then we looked at him restoring the role that he created for mankind to fill. He didn't just create us so he could dote over us. He created us with a specific job function that he wanted us to perform. But that was lost and restored through the power of the resurrection. And so this week what we're going to look at is reality. See, that's another thing that I think that God has restored and is restoring and is going to restore even further. The reality of living in his presence. See, in the beginning, God created mankind to live in his presence. If you look at Genesis, I want to show you one verse there to begin with. It's in verse 8. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You've read that before, right? There's, there's two words here I'd like for you to circle in that passage, in that verse. I want you to circle walking, and I want you to circle presence. Because those are going to come back, and we're going to see those repeating. We're going to see that, that theme carried on. Now, walking, I think we all kind of get, right? So in the beginning, Adam and Eve got to walk with God. And in his presence, they got to walk with him. Now, that word presence in Hebrew is a, is a special word. It's uh, panim, and it means face. What do you think that suggests about what the relationship was, what the reality of living with God was like in the beginning? Face is intimate, isn't it? Do you let just anybody touch your face? <laughs> no, didn't take any, you didn't have to think about that at all. That's something kind of special, right? And people that you know face to face, that's a different kind of relationship, isn't it? See, I think what we find here is in the beginning, God created man, mankind, to live with him face to face. But sin, we know the story, sin intervened. Sin prevented intimacy with God and caused mankind to live in a different kind of a reality than the one God created for us. Folks, we live in an altered reality. This, have you ever wondered how this thing... We look at the world around us and all the different... Man, there's a lot of ugliness out there, isn't it? And some people question God and say, how can a loving God create a place like this? Well, He didn't. We did. We're the ones who altered reality. Adam is our representative. He altered it. What God created was so much better and so much different. 
it was intimate, it was walking, it was talking, it was face to face. It wasn't violent, there wasn't death. We pick up the story here in Genesis 3, just a few verses down in verses 23 and 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden he stationed a cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. There's a whole lot in that description. And we're not going to get to take all of it apart and look at it. But just to sum it up, mankind wasn't able to live in God's presence in the same way anymore. And see, it's interesting, God wasn't trying to get man away from him because he didn't want to be with him. It wasn't that at all. It says there that the specific thing he wanted to cut us off was from the tree of life. Did you catch that? God didn't want us to live forever because he didn't want us to live forever in a state of with lacking intimacy with him. He didn't want us to have access. He didn't want us to live forever separated from intimacy with him and from the tree of life. I'm sorry, yeah. I'm trying to read my notes and make sure I'm on track here today. See, the first time that someone ever suggested this to me, Gary was reading an author. I think the book was called uh, God With Us. Some of you folks read that? And Gary had said this author had quoted that God kicking man out of the out of the garden wasn't so much the act of a vengeful God who was angry as a loving God who was showing mercy. See, God was unwilling to allow us to live forever in a condition where we were fallen and separated from Him and lacking intimacy, so they were kicked out of the garden. He drove them out and separated them from the tree of life. And He put a cherubim at the, at the entrance. Uh, the Bible's got several different descriptions of cherubim. None of them resemble a chubby little baby with cute little wings. All of them resemble something that would scare you to death. Something that is huge. God wasn't fooling around. And he left a very, very serious sign that you are now out of my presence. You can't live with me. And even though that was the case, God didn't abandon us. He wasn't okay with it being that way. Even though we couldn't live with him in the garden the way that he had wanted it to be, even though the reality had been altered and mankind had to live outside of his presence, or at least in a different way with his presence, God refused to abandon him. You look in Exodus 25 and you see that God is still wanting to have connection with people. And there, he, what's happening in Exodus 25 is Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai. And God's talking to him and giving him instructions about what he's supposed to do with the Israelite people. And it says there, God says, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. And if you know the story, what happens is he gives him all these very elaborate, detailed instructions to build a tabernacle. Now, a tabernacle is a tent but it's a tent with a real specific purpose. And it was made in a specific kind of way. And there was so much imagery there that was supposed to inform us about God and about what reality was really supposed to be like. Boy, I tell you what, we could do a, a whole long lesson series about all the symbolism that was in, in, the, uh, in the tabernacle and later in the temple, but I don't have time for that this morning, so I'm just going to have to mention it and move on. But I do have a question for you. Why would God choose the Israelites to make his presence known and to dwell with them? Why did he want to dwell with the Israelites? 
Why not the Hittites? Why not the Amorites or the Moabites or any of those other ites? <laughs> Illinoisites. <laughs> and the reason why I'm asking this question is because a few years ago, I had never really even thought about this objection to God, but I was talking with a guy who was an atheist, and he was saying, well, listen, I can't believe in God because of this nasty world that we live in. But even more, he doesn't sound like the kind of God that you talk about because he's a racist. <laughs> a racist? What do you mean that? Well, it's incredibly unfair for him to choose just one people to reveal himself to and then punish everybody else. So why was God wanting to dwell with the Israelites? Well, it wasn't because he liked them better than everybody else and only wanted to bless one group of people. He had a mission for them. He talks about it a little bit in Isaiah 49.6. He says, I will also make you a light of the nations. See, we couldn't live in God's presence. But God didn't give up on mankind. And so he chose to choose a people through whom he could shine his light on everybody else. He goes on there, he says, I will make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. See, God wanted to restore reality of mankind living in intimacy with him. So he made his presence known to everyone through one group. Folks, that isn't how Israel came to understand it over time. They came to understand it. God has chosen us and we're special. But boy, oh boy, I've got to fast forward here for, for a second. As a church, how easy is it for us to forget that God's working through us not because we're special, but because he wants to reach the rest of the world. And see, it happens in churches all over the, all over the place where we forget that God is about, this is an altered reality and God is, is working, he's already started to restore the reality of living with him and he's called us out of darkness into light to be the light and to shine that light on other people so that all men may have a chance to live with him forever. God was always about wanting to redeem all of mankind, not just one specific group. So, God chose to have a dwelling place among men, but it wasn't like Eden. You know, there's a difference whenever you live with someone and whenever someone comes with you in, in kind of a limited sort of a way. Uh, only in this tabernacle, the way that it was set up, God's presence was manifest in what they called the Holy of Holies. It was like a system of boxes inside of boxes. There was an outer courtyard where some people could come. There was another courtyard where other people could come. And then there was the Holy of Holies. And that's where God's presence was. They had the Ark of the Covenant there. They had some other things that were there. God's Spirit, His presence, the Shekinah glory, actually came and manifested itself on this. And everybody could see it. It was visible. I think Dan talked about it in communion, that they were able to see this cloud, this pillar of cloud that surrounded the tabernacle. And they also saw a night with, with a pillar of fire. But God's presence was only in this one spot. In fact, some other scriptures even refer to it as God's footstool. So his throne is in heaven and the earth is his footstool. David talked about constructing a temple for his footstool. So you get this image that there's a real limit to God's presence even in this tabernacle situation. Going beyond that, only one guy and only one time a year could actually go into the presence of God. And he couldn't go there to stay. He had to leave. So... What's interesting is, uh, in verse, uh, Exodus 26, 31 through 33, it says there, God's instructions to Moses about this tabernacle and this holy of holies, where his presence was going to be. He says, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material. By the way, blue and purple and scarlet, those are the colors of a sky. 
Again, I think God was trying to speak with symbolism about real reality, not this altered reality that we live in. He says, make, make this veil of these materials and fine twisted linen, linen, and it shall be made with cherubim. The work of skillful workmen, the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. So you get it. Here's this holy of holies where God's presence is, his footstool. They viewed it as the overlap of heaven and earth where they interlocked. Heaven on earth, right there. But it was separated by a veil. A big, thick, heavy veil. And embroidered on this veil were two cherubim. I think it was intentional. It was just like Eden. It was to remind us that the presence, that reality, we're living in an altered reality. God's reality is just on the other side. But there's a veil. There was a separation between us. If you're not a Christian today, you're on the wrong side of that veil. If you're, a Christ, if you're not a Christian today, you're on the wrong side of that veil. And if you are a Christian today, you need to know that God has dealt with that veil too. The Holy of Holies, just a few descriptions about it, it was perfectly square. When you look at the descriptions of it, it was like this perfectly square, square box. Exactly the same width as depth as height. And it had this veil. And if you understand why the guy came, could only go in there, it was only the high priest who could go in once a year. And he did it to offer sacrifices. And he wasn't welcome to stay. And the whole thing about the sacrifice was for about purification. It was about purifying a place for God and a people for his purpose. And so they would offer these, the sin sacrifice so that God could dwell among his people and empower them to do the things that he needed them to do because he wanted to take the message to the rest of the world that he was saving them, that they could find salvation in him, that relationship with him could be restored and the reality of living in his presence was going to be restored. Okay. Mark fifteen thirty-seven through 38. Jesus, when he was crucified, Mark records that he let, let out a loud cry and breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. That's the veil that God said needed to be there. That's the veil with the cherubim that was supposed to remind us of the separation between God and man. At Jesus' crucifixion, this veil was torn in two. Now, this is not an easy thing to get done. Uh, the veil, I think, was like 90 feet tall in the temple. That's a big veil. And does anybody remember how thick it was? I, I know it wasn't, it wasn't like a, a nice little curtain. It was a thick, heavy thing. It was Ryan Donahue a couple of years ago that, that pointed out that it was torn, to me he pointed out, that it was torn from the top to the bottom. I think we're supposed to not miss that symbology too. At Jesus' crucifixion and his death, the ultimate price for sin was paid. And what was God's response to it? I'm tearing down the wall between us. I'm doing it. You, you can't do this. Not only that, but it's done. It's done. The access into a relationship with God is now open. Our ability to move into His presence is there. In 2 Corinthians 1.22 and 5, 1-5, through 5, Paul talks about the presence of God in the Holy Spirit living inside believers. And he says it's just a deposit. In other words, it's a taste. What we have now, if you're a Christian, then you've moved from one side of the veil to the other. 
but we don't have the whole thing restored yet. There's more coming. When Danny was talking about during, during his communion talk, he was talking about feeling the presence of God. I hope that you felt it as you were praying together and talking to him just a few minutes ago. Have you been to worship services where you're keenly aware of coming into the presence of God and how good it is and you enjoy fellowship with, with his people and with him? I want you to know that's just a taste. When you're aware of the presence of God in you and see him changing you and moving you and working on you and working through you and working for you, it's just a taste. See, a deposit is a guarantee of what's coming. The deposit isn't the whole thing, is it? And so some of the relationship with God that he created us to have with him, some of the reality of living with him has been restored for Christians. By the way, this doesn't have to do with how good of a person you are. This is about which team you're on, whose family you're in. And if you haven't made that commitment to be in his family, you're on the wrong side of this veil. And the only person's fault that it could be is yours. You see what God has done in trying to restore how far he went to make his presence known and to restore us to reality of living in his presence. He's done it all. And it's time, if you're not a Christian, to move beyond that. Get past that veil and to live in his presence. Because there is more coming. If all we've got right now is a taste of what's coming, then my goodness, it's pretty good. But what else is coming? What's, what's the whole thing going to look like? Okay, so I'm going to do something that people don't normally try to do, and that is I'm going to try to read out a revelation to you. See, we, we started off looking at the beginning picture out of Revelation, Revelation, I'm sorry, in Genesis 3. The last book in the Bible is Revelation. The last two chapters in Revelation talk about what's coming. Talk about what this restored reality is going to look like. So we're going to look at that and I'm going to read quickly through Revelation 21-22. I'm going to skip some verses and I would like for you to read this yourself slowly for yourself at another time and think through these passages. If you know much about Revelation, you know it's not written like a technical manual. It's, it's written with a style of language they call apocalyptic. And the best way I can describe it is it's, it's writing with word pictures. Everything is a word picture to describe something. Uh, for instance, if I said to you, man, I was watching the baseball game last night, our first baseman flew around those bases. Would you think that I was telling you he had wings? No, no, you, you wouldn't confuse that. You know that people don't have wings. Baseball players don't have wings. You know what I'm telling you is that he ran really fast. Some of the language that John uses in Revelation is a little bit like that. And so some of the details of trying to be really specific with them can get kind of dicey. But as we read through this, there is an image that he wants us to grab a hold of. There is something he wants us to understand about this restored reality that God will one day bring fully and finally into existence. So I'm going to start in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what it's going to be like. But what he's going to describe from here on down is he's going to talk about what this new heaven and this new earth is going to be like. What this new existence, this new reality of living in God's presence is like. And the big thing that I catch from this is it's not going to be like this reality, folks. What's coming is new. This is going away. 
And that should be good news for us. One of the first things he points out is that there will no longer be any sea. I don't think that God's got a problem with water. I don't think that he doesn't want us to have oceans. I think the metaphor here or the image here, see, in their day, water represented separation. And it was a spooky thing. Uh, I don't think history records any famous Jewish sailors. <laughs> I think that was other people. I mean, the Jews are the only ones that looked at, at the Lake of Galilee and called it a sea. So they had this thing about water, and they thought of it as separation. But apparently where we're going, there's not going to be anything to separate us. There will be no separation where we're going. That's pretty cool, because i got some people that I love that I'm separated from. But even at my best, I still have a separation where I don't get to see God's face. Where I don't get to reach out and touch Him and be in His presence in that way. Where we're going, there'll be no separation. He says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, that's that tent, of God is among men, and He will dwell among them. And they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. That could sound like some of what we experience today, right? But remember, what we have right now is a deposit. It's a taste of what's coming. Where we're going, it's going to be even more present. More access to God, more in His presence. And He says in verse 14, And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Man, I could stop right there. How many times... I mean, I know things are better for me as a Christian. There was a time whenever I wasn't. And I like this lifestyle. I like serving God. But I still have to cry a lot. How about you? Tears are still present. But where we're going, there won't be any need for tears. Either that or else John wants us to understand that when the tears come, and I, I, I just think... It's probably that there won't be any. But if there are some, God's the one who's going to wipe them away. Hard to cry when you've got God wiping your tears away. I, to me, I get excited whenever I read this stuff because I want to get there. I want to get there now if I could. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. Lost a loved one? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that the last enemy to be abolished is death. Death has already been defeated, but it hasn't been abolished yet. Where we're going, it won't exist. Death was never a part of the reality that God created in the beginning. It's a part of the altered reality that we have because of the fall, because of sin. But this new heaven, new earth, whatever that is, nobody's going to die. He says there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because the first things have passed away. Folks, we weren't created to live in a place like this. We were created to live in God's presence and He is going to restore it. He is restoring it now. Verses 5 through 8, He says, He who sits on this throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Has anybody ever made anything new for you? Yeah. And that's kind of nice, especially when they make it specifically for you, right? Jesus is making all things new for you. Let that soak in for a second. This is being made new for you. That's pretty cool. 
And he goes on in verse 7, he says, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable, that means people who do shameful things, and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, what a party, huh? That's a good group of people. All those guys, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Where we're going, there won't be cowards. Have you ever been betrayed by a coward? You ever tried to count on a coward? They won't be there. Wouldn't it be nice to live without cowards and liars and people who do shameful things? This is going to be a really good place to be. Verses 15 through 16. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are the same, are equal. Okay. I don't think that we're supposed to take that specifically to be 1,500 miles, but the thing that I can gather out of that is this thing is a perfect cube. Somehow, the whole thing, the whole new heavens and the new earth is somehow the Holy of Holies. See, the veil has been gone. The cherubim has been yanked. The separation between God and man has been removed. And we will be living in His presence. Not just stepping in and stepping back out, but living there. This is what God's doing and where this is all going. In verse 22 through 27, he says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, because there won't be any night there, its gates will never be closed. Gates are for keeping stuff out, right? We're going to a place that isn't trying to keep anything out. But the gates are always open. Night, I think, is a metaphor for vulnerability. When do, you, when do bad guys usually do their business? In the middle of the night. I used to be a cop. And, and it used to be about 11 to 2 was drunk hunting time. And then from 2 to 6 was burglars. You know, people, you, you bad guys, bad things happen at night. But there's not going to be any night. I think what he's telling us is... Those kind of bad things, those vulnerabilities and those weaknesses, they won't exist where we're going. The gates will never be shut. And he says, uh, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination or shameful things, and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What is this Lamb's book of life? Have you heard about that before? Usually in songs and lyrics and poetry and that kind of thing. Did you know that there was really a literal book of life? In Jerusalem, they had a book of life. And it worked very much like our county courthouse does whenever it records birth certificates. See, we have, it's much easier for me to prove who I am in, in our society than it was for them in the ancient world to prove who they were. So inheritance was at issue. So if I adopted someone or if I had a child and I wanted them to inherit my stuff, I would have to go down to the temple, I think that's where they kept the book of life, and record that this is now my child and that they stand to inherit. The imagery here is Jesus has got a book of life. And the names in that are the people who get to inherit his stuff. You remember in Luke, I think it was Luke chapter 10, I think verse 20, 
the guys got real excited about something that Jesus had done. He says, don't get excited about this. Be excited about your names being in the book of life. The only people who are going to live in this place where we're going are people who stand to inherit. That means that they're all family. That means that they're all written in that book. That's crazy cool. 22, verse 1 through 5, it says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb, in the middle of its street. So the water of life, the river of life, it's not a trickle. It's not a mist. It's not a spritz. It's a river. And it's not polluted. You know, our river out here is swollen up pretty good. It's backed up all over the place, and it's not something that we're looking forward to. But where we're going, this river of life runs right down the middle of the street, right down the middle of the main street. It's coming from the throne of God. This is a good thing, and I think what it speaks to is that life is here. Life is all over here. God is keeping everything alive. God has cleansed everything. He's made it perfect. And guess, guess what else it says? It says, on either side of the river was the tree of life. Now, generally speaking, trees only grow in one spot or the other, not in two or multiple places. But this is all coming from God's throne. I think the image is, is access to the tree of life has been restored. Where we're going, access to the tree of life has been fully restored. It says, and they're bearing 12 kinds of uh, fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. Verse 3 says, there will no longer be any curse. In Genesis 3, what all got cursed? Satan got cursed, right? Man and woman got cursed, and so did the planet. No curse. I celebrated the, the uh, reversing of the curse for the Cubs last, last November. You know, I've been a Cubs fan all my life, and I've always wondered, would my team ever finally win? And they called it a curse, the curse of the billy goat. And it was a big deal. In fact, the fifth largest gathering of humans in human history, recorded human history, happened in Chicago to celebrate the reverse of the curse. It's nothing compared to reversing the curse that we've been under. And we're still under. This earth is still cursed. The reality, the ultra-reality that sin created for us to live in still bears the curse. But where we're going, the curse is reversed. No more curse. No more death. No more dying. And he says, they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of a light or lamp, nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illuminate them. And they will reign forever and ever. Something about where we're going has a purpose for us too. And it's to reign with him. And it's not a temporary job. And it's not one that we can get kicked out of. When we get there, it's going to be forever and ever. Now... Does any of that excite you? Is there anybody here who does not want to be a part of that? Good. <laughs> I didn't see any hands. We should all want to be a part of that. What I hope that I've done in the last 20 minutes or so is to try to tell you what God has done, what He created to begin with, what got vandalized and destroyed, that the reality of living with Him was taken away. It became something He never intended for humans to live in. And that he refused to accept that or to allow that to last. And from the time of the fall of man to this very day, God has been working to restore the reality of living with him. And at the crucifixion, 
and the resurrection of Jesus, that was when the bomb went off. That was the point where God ripped the barrier away and started putting it all back together. And what we have now is a taste of what's coming, and we should be excited. So if God has done all of this for me, for you, what does He want me to do because of it? That's the question we should ask, right? There should be a response that we have to what God has done, what He is doing, and what He's still going to do. And I want to look, I want to show you 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, because I think Peter is trying to, to answer that question for us. He starts off in verse 10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. That's what we've been talking about, is the day of the Lord. That final day that we're looking forward to, whenever God puts an end to this reality and brings in the one that's coming. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? See, if we know what God has done, if we know what he's done to restore our ability to walk with him and to live with him face to face, and that, that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth that's been prepared, made new for us, how ought we to live? That's Peter's question. And then he answers it. He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So, what does God want me to do? I've got three things for you that I can pick out of this text. The first one is God wants me to walk with him. Remember in Genesis 3, what it was like before the fall? They walked with God. In verse 11 here of what we just read out of 2 Peter 3, Peter says we ought to live godly and holy lives. I believe he's talking about our walk. Other places in Scripture talk about the Christian life as a walk, right? It's a very familiar metaphor. Well, think about it for a second. What is a walk? A walk is one intentional step followed by another intentional step and another that takes me on a journey to some place. God wants me to walk with him which means making intentional steps. Taking intentional steps. And it ends up being a a holy and a godly life. By the way, holy means set us apart for one use, right? If we're supposed to live a holy life, that means that our lives are supposed to be about Him. And that's it. And that's it. I've had older guys, um, people that I respect, say, you know, Everything's fine in moderation. Religion's good in moderation. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if you get this is one basket and every egg has got to go in there. That's what God wants me to do to walk with Him. It's also probably worth noting that He's not talking about having God walk with us. Uh, Maybe I'm being a little, maybe I'm pushing this a little bit too much, but it seems to me we live in a culture that seems obsessed with the idea of God doting over us and walking with us where we want to go. And see, there's a big difference between inviting God to walk with me and me walking with Him. If I'm walking with Him, He's the one choosing where we go. But if I'm thinking that God's going to walk with me, the reality is I don't always go where God wants to go. If we're... What He's done for us, what He is doing for us, what He's going to do for us, 
Why wouldn't we want to walk with Him? That's what He wants me to do, is to walk with Him. So, in your notes, what I've got is I've got a so I will fill in the blank. Okay, so what I want you to do with this, and you may have to spend some time praying and asking God to reveal to you what the answer in that blank ought to be. Each one of you are at different places in your walk with God. Some of you are still on the wrong side of the veil. And you're not going to begin that walk with Him until you surrender and let Him transfer your allegiance and your nationality from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. You just need to change your residency and your loyalties. And that's where you need to begin. Others of you, you may have to think about this. What do I need to do to make sure that I walk with God better? Maybe the way you're going to answer that is, I need to remind myself every day that I'm walking with Him, not asking Him to walk with me. Some of you, you know the next step you're supposed to take. You know it. It's right in front of you. It could be a billboard that's flashing. And fear or something else is keeping you from taking that step. I would challenge you to write that down. Since God has done all this, what do you need to do? He wants you to walk with Him, so what will you do? The second thing is, is God wants me to look forward. He says that in verse 12, doesn't He? He says, look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. God wants me to look forward. Let me ask you, how well do you walk when you're looking backwards? You ever tried it? It doesn't work too good, does it? Yeah, could you imagine? There's obstacles up here on this stage. If I keep trying to look back and start walking, you think I'm going to get hurt? Probably. It's hard to walk with God when you're looking back at your past. How many of you guys still deal with hang-ups and hurts from the past? Loss that you've suffered, mistakes that you've made, regrets that, that burden you, and you, you look back over your shoulder, that's no way to live. He's given us something to look forward to. By the way, I guess I could possibly also say looking forward eliminates looking down. You ever walk whenever you're just all you can all you can you're focused on is what's going on right now and not where you're headed? That doesn't work too good. How many motorcycle riders are out there out here? Eulen, you'll know what I'm talking about. Whenever you go around a corner, what do you look at? Where you're going, right? This adage seems to be true no matter what application you put it into. You better look where you're going because you're going to go where you look. And when you go around a corner on a motorcycle, you have to tilt, right? They call it tickling the pegs, where you really bank into it and your foot peg kind of sparks on the, on the pavement a little bit. The temptation is to look down at the asphalt. You look down at the asphalt, you know where you're going? You're going to the asphalt. <laughs> so the only way to survive a corner on a motorcycle is to look at where you want to be and to look ahead where you're going to go. I think there's a lot of truth there for our walk with God. Where we're going is to live in His presence in a reality that He had created for us, which is really nothing like this. And He's told us to live that way now, by the rules of heaven now. Isn't that what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're supposed to be now looking forward to where we're going and practicing how we're going to live when we get there. Two, enthusiasm. If you forget what this is all about, if you forget that this is where this is going, it's going to be hard not to get caught up in the world around you. It's going to be hard not to hang on to this world and cleave to it like it's the important thing. 
This one is an altered reality, guys. It's all we know, but it's an altered reality. It's not what God has in mind for us. It's not what He created us for. We should be looking forward to that because if I'm heading there and I'm excited about it, it gives me energy and momentum to keep walking. You ever been on a long walk? And you, if you don't know where you're going, you're going to sit down and quit. Right? You don't want to sit down and quit on this walk, guys. God has done so much to be able to walk with you. And where He's walking us to is a place all of us should want to go and be excited about getting there. And it will change. If you practice this, it will change the way you live every day. It will change the way you feel about the problems that you go through and the struggles and the heartache because nothing is wasted wherever you understand that it's all about God's purpose, that we're being transformed and we're being transferred into a different reality. So I've got the same, so I will. God wants me to look forward, so I will. What? What do you need to do to make sure that you're looking forward? You're all in different places. You're not all going to answer that the same way. But I would encourage you to think about it and ask God what it is that He wants you to do and make a commitment to take that next step. The last one I've got to show you today comes a little bit later in 2 Peter chapter 3. It's in verses 17 and 18. God wants me to grow. God wants me to grow. Peter says there, You therefore, beloved... Knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. You might want to circle that if I've got it in your notes. Be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. You see, completing this journey, we're going to have to guard some things because we are going to have people all the time, unprincipled men, he calls them, who are going to try to shift your focus away from ahead and forward to the here and now. And that they're going to tell you living 100% Holy, separate, for God, making God your absolute end-all, be-all, is stupid. And they're going to provide you with a different way of coming at that. And some of them are going to be fairly decent people. Likeable people, popular people, successful people. But not have their name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Not headed where you're headed. So you're going to have to guard and make sure that you don't let someone trip you up and take it away from you. Verse 18, he says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, that's the expectation, is that we'll grow. Grace. We talk about grace and sometimes we we cheapen it down to one aspect. You ever heard someone say, Well, I've got to give grace to that person. What do they mean? Forgiveness, slack. Grace is a lot bigger and more important than forgiveness or slack. Grace is something that Jesus was full of. In fact, I don't know if we, it's accurate to say that I can give grace to somebody. I think that's His to give. I think we get grace from Him. See, it's something of His personality. Something of His perspective. Something of His priorities. Something about who He is. I don't fully understand it, but I know it only comes from Him. I know He's full of it. And His grace teaches us and changes us and makes us more like Him. And Peter expects us, since we know what God's doing, we know what He's done and we know where this is going, He expects us to grow in that grace. To know more about it, to experience and not just know about it, but to experience it. And to see it transform us. He wants us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. See, I don't think it's just about a head knowledge. It's about an experience. He wants us to grow with Christ. 
you know, on a long walk with someone, you can get to know them pretty well. Right? This is what we've been invited to do, is to walk with God and to grow and to know Him. Last scripture I want to show you this morning, kind of where it all began for us in this lesson series. Philippians 3, 10 through 12. We've got a theme for the year, which is take hold. And we came out of this passage. And listen to what Paul says here and think about what we've been talking about. And see if maybe this was what was on Paul's mind. He says, I want to know Christ. Now, I don't think anybody knew more about Christ than Paul. So I'm pretty sure he's talking about this experiencing thing. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. And so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Does it sound like Paul had the same things we've been talking about on his mind? See, the, the thing here, folks, is the, one of the effects of the resurrection should be that it may, causes me to take hold of some things. Take hold of my relationship with him. Take hold of the role that he's created for me to fill. And to take hold of this reality of living in his presence. And keep focusing on it. And let it power me and to walk with him and to talk with Him, and to grow with Him. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know which side of the veil you stand on. The only side that's going to make it to where we're going is the ones who've passed from death into life. The ones who've switched their allegiance from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of the Son that He loves. If you're on the wrong side of that, man, don't wait. Why would you wait? Look what God has done for you. Come on. Let's go. This is going somewhere. Walk with Him. Let's do it. He's restoring a reality that is better than we can imagine, better than we can ask for. If you would, bow with me. We're going to pray and uh, finish up our service here this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, it's overwhelming to think about, to try to understand all that You've done and all that You're doing and all that is yet to come. But Father, just a taste of it is just so incredible and inspiring and motivating. Father, we deserve none of what You've done for us and what You're planning on doing. But yet You still qualified us simply through faith. Simply by bowing our knee to Jesus and allowing Him to be our King. Uh, Father, we don't want to live as rebels. And we don't want to live a powerless life looking down or looking back and missing all that you stretched out before us. Father, we want to be as, as your church here. We want to give you glory. We want to give you honor. We want to be a part of that transferring, uh, part of that uh, transforming, becoming more like your son and shedding more light into this world so that your salvation can be seen all over the planet. We know that you want to save everyone, that there's nobody that you don't want to be a part of what's coming. Father, I pray that you'll help us to keep looking forward, to get more excited all the time, and to let it, let it transform the way we live today. Father, we love you, and we pray that you're pleased with all that we say here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.